Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, The Readings and Australia Red Cross Book Club on the Laws and Impact of War. In this session, we are joined by Hugo Slim, Senior Research Fellow at the Las Casas Institute for Social Justice at Oxford University, to discuss his latest book, Solferino 21, Warfare, Civilians and Humanitarians in the 21st Century. The book examines how the world is passing from an age of industrial warfare to a new era of computerised warfare, and a renewed risk of great power conflict. Slim's book draws on the founding moment of the modern Red Cross movement, the Battle of Solferino, to demonstrate the changing nature of conflict in this century. Slim analyses the changing landscape of tech, politics, law, and the strategy of warfare, how civilians suffer and adapt during modern warfare, and then critiques today's humanitarian system, which needs to be less colonial and more locally led. Here's the host of the discussion, Readings bookseller, Murray Madison. Welcome, everyone. This is a series that we run in concert with the Australian Red Cross book group. Uh, We've been doing it now for a couple of years. We've had some fantastic conversations. Before we go any further, I think that it's important that we take a moment here as we're telling stories, as we're talking about people's relationships to each other, which is what international humanitarian law, war and conflict are all unfortunately about on some level, that we stop to pay respects to the First Nations people of the land on which we're on tonight, which is the people of the Kulin Nations. And I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, to the elders of all the Indigenous peoples across Australia and indeed to First Nations people around the world. Tonight, I want to welcome you to what is going to be a fantastic conversation between Mary Anna McGlasson, who is the Director for the Centre for Humanitarian Leadership, Deakin University, and she is joined by Hugo Slim, who's Senior Research Fellow at the Las Casas Institute for Social Justice at Oxford University, and he is, in fact, in England today, he says, to discuss his latest book, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Solferino 21. Warfare, Civilians and Humanitarians in the 21st Century. I'm really excited to be here. I'm really excited for all of you to be here. And without further ado, I am going to pass you over to Mariana. Thank you. Thank you, Marie, for the wonderful introduction and welcome everyone. I see a really nice turnout tonight. I know that lots of us spend a lot of time on Zoom in our workplaces And so we really are honored that you've taken another hour out of your day to spend a little more time on Zoom for this really important conversation. I think Hugo was someone who is well known throughout the humanitarian world. And I can say personally, he's one of my personal favorite humanitarians. He refers to himself in his book as someone from the 1980s generation of humanitarian assistance. I'm a few decades later than that, but I think what's great about Hugo is that he does this wonderful reflection on his position as sort of the second or third wave of humanitarians, and I'm maybe the fifth or sixth wave of humanitarians, but he's always very generous in thinking ahead on behalf of those who are coming after him and the next generation of humanitarians to make sure that we're thinking critically about how the sector has evolved. And so if you haven't picked up a copy of this book, it's Solferino 21, Warfare, Civilians, and Humanitarians in the 21st Century. 
I really had a great time reading this book. You can see I've got lots of tabs in here, but I wanted to maybe just kick off Hugo with a question. Just if you could tell us a bit, what made you think that this book was the right book for this time? Why was this book important to write? And what was your purpose in writing the book? And I know you have a very interesting story about how COVID hit in the middle of your plans. So maybe tell us a bit about the evolution of this book. Thank you very much. And Marie, thank you for hosting us at, at Readings. And thank you for all, all for coming. So why did I write the book? I was I had just finished five years at the ICRC as head of policy and diplomacy. And it happened to be around the time of the 160th anniversary of the Battle of Solferino, where Henri Dunant sort of had his idea for the Red Cross. So we were all celebrating that and thinking about it. And I reread Solferino that, that Dunant wrote around that time. And I suddenly thought, but surely we should do a book like this today, which looks at the battlefields of today, which looks at humanitarian response today. I thought that's what I would try and do and write it in a similar sort of structure that looked at the battlefield first, then the experience of suffering, and then what should we do about it, which was Dunant's structure after his, he only had about five or six days there, but after that, he, he wrote this book. And so I went to my boss, who's a wonderful Australian, very well known to the Red Cross in Australia, Helen Durham, and she was there. And I said, Helen, look, I'm, I'm about to leave, but would it be useful for us to try and do a kind of modern Solferino book? I could take a year to come, you know, get back to Oxford and take a year to write it. And I could walk around all the contemporary battlefields and look from the ground up at Yemen and Syria and um, Nigeria and write a bit like Dunant. And with her typical enthusiasm, she said, yes, great idea, Hugo. Let's make it happen. So between us, we, we made it happen and funded me for a year to wander around war zones and then write. And then COVID happened, as Mariana said. So then I couldn't go anywhere. So then we rather had to change tack and I couldn't visit and write a book from battlefields upwards like Dunant did. So I had to do my best and write, write this from my little village in Oxfordshire, where I am now. And I hope it's still valuable and I hope it helps, but it tries to do that same thing. What's warfare like today? What's the experience of those who suffer warfare and what are humanitarians doing about it? And what could they do better? So that was it, really. It's a shame. I think it would be really interesting to maybe do a sequel to this book where you actually can go and look from the ground up, or at least maybe an article. You could write a blog post about it. Yeah. We're able to get back out there. So I was meant to start at Solferino, the, the lovely village in northern Italy where the battle was, and then go off from there. But of course, I didn't get there until I'd finished the book, really. Better late than never, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> What struck me as I was kind of kicking into this book over the long weekend here in Australia was that you wrapped up this book not long before our latest big war has broken out. Of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You sort of allude in the first couple of chapters of your book that we've kind of avoided great power conflict for quite a long time. You suggest, and I think quite correctly, obviously, that that's quite a possibility still in the future. Would you have written anything differently had you written the book a year later? Or what are your reflections on how the book, how your thinking might have changed or been reinforced with the latest conflict? No, you're absolutely right. In fact, we, we launched the book in Oxford the morning after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, actually. So it was, it was extraordinary. 
So, you know, the book does emphasize, it puts this notion of big war forwards that, you know, actually we're now again on the cusp of an age of big war between great powers like we were in the 19th and 20th century, early 20th century, and with really big weapons now, planetary weapons that come from space, can dominate the world, etc. So I think I would still say that was the same. I think and, you know, the tragedy of Ukraine showed that that is right. You know, great powers are going to confront each other. And we, we've seen the same around Taiwan as the other flashpoint. We knew Ukraine and Taiwan were flashpoints between great powers. And now they've sort of become that. I think what I would have written differently, Mariana, is I would have emphasized much more what's called today hybrid warfare. You know, we saw it last night with the Russians denying it, but probably blowing up. Nord Stream pipeline, the whole economic battle, which in, in 20th century wars and 19th century wars is called blockade, but today it's called sanctions. You know, when you blockade an enemy and you fight a really hard economic war between you as well as the battlefield war, I would have emphasized that more now because, of course, that's what happened is happening because, you know, the West and Russia are at war. The West is supporting Ukraine on the battlefield, but they are both engaged in economic warfare against one another and a lot of potential cyber physical sabotage as well that is going on that we probably don't know much about. And I think what's maybe something else to take that reflection a bit further is the knock-on effects of that economic battle on the communities of the world that can least afford to suffer in that economic battle. When we're talking about global human rights and international humanitarian law, the hunger crisis that will certainly be exacerbated by that. I think that's absolutely right. And we know from our own wars in the second half of the 20th century and the first part of this 21st century, we know that actually most people experience war as poverty. You know, it impoverishes them dramatically. You know, in, in the last 20 years, more people have died from the poverty of war than they have been killed by the weapons of war. And that's obviously happening again today as, as people are displaced, impoverished, as, you know, tragically, this battle is between two of the great grain-producing and energy-producing powers of the world, which means we have energy poverty and food poverty globally as a direct result of this, of this war. So you're right. People, they wouldn't say they're suffering from war, but actually they are in many parts of the world because they're impoverished by it. I was reflecting on that, thinking that that might be another potential dynamic of modern day conflict in the globally interconnected world, as we've seen a blockade of Ukrainian ships being not being able to leave the harbors with the grain and the knock on effect and the exacerbating effect that's having on the, the crisis in the Horn of Africa, for example. Maybe in, in Dunant's time, maybe there wouldn't have been that type of highly intricate globalization that would have affected the human rights and viability of communities so far away. Yeah, well, that's interesting too. I think it may not have been totally global, but certainly in Dunant's time and before Dunant's time, my little country, Britain, mm. had pioneered the blockade because what Britain had that nobody else had was a massive great navy. And so we blockaded Europe under Napoleon, and then we blockaded it again in World War I, and then we blockaded it again in World War II. So that was economic warfare by us. And, you know, that, that caused enormous poverty throughout continental Europe 
as well, the fact that we wouldn't let anything in or out. So I'm afraid we rather invented all that stuff in the, in the modern time in Britain. And of course, humanitarian agencies emerged in revolt against British blockades. So both Save the Children and Oxfam in Britain emerged deliberately to confront policies of blockade in World War I and World War II and say it was completely immoral to blockade continental Europe and see children dying because of a war blockade. So there's always been this tension. And, you know, it's fantastic to see actually the UN playing a really positive role and the Turks playing such a positive role to break that Russian blockade around Ukraine a little, which is what Oxfam and Save the Children tried to do in World War One and Two. Yeah, that was sort of the, the beginning of the big aid agencies that started with a bunch of rabble-rouser volunteers, right? They were terribly posh, actually. <laughs> so, you know, Save the Children... I describe them as establishment radicals. They were all very upper class, very well connected. All their brothers and sisters were MPs or lords or whatever. But they did team up with the miners' unions and the labor unions. They were radicals and they were highly organized. And the same with Oxfam. Oxfam had similar roots, although not quite as, as posh, in a sense, in British society terms. Yeah. Just to, to segue a little bit, something that struck me really interesting on page 23, which I know you wrote this book a long time ago, you make this interesting comparison between remote warfare and localization that got me thinking about the sort of emerging risk mitigation strategies of big INGOs of sort of pushing all of that actual risk while we sit behind laptops from remote settings behind the puppet strings, coordinating aid. It's our local partners or local communities that are often taking on that risk. And it didn't seem like you were making a favorable, um, a sort of favorable picture of modern NGO behavior in that sense. What were your thoughts on that? I'm a great supporter of localization, actually, and I'm a great admirer of the Australian Red Cross for actually being one of the few organizations to dare to try it. So under Judy Slater, and I think that I'm, I'm in favor of that sort of approach. What I meant there was that really Western forces were localizing too, because others would call it proxy warfare. But they were saying, we don't want a heavy footprint on this place because it's not going to work for us, but we do want other people fighting. So they, in fact, were incredibly committed to creating locally led fighting, if you like. So they were training, arming, advising from afar and quite close up. And so it was a localization strategy, but a military one. Am I in favor of you know remote remote aid and that sort of things? I think it's been good. I think it was inevitable during COVID. I think it's it's good because it allows others to take the space on the ground and hopefully to define and create their own humanitarian organizations. So I'm I'm a and as the book shows, I'm a big champion of locally led aid. We'll come back to that because some of my favorite parts of your book were as you wrap up and quite a big call for more reflection by humanitarians on that very thing. So we'll come back to that. You go in that same section. So you'll know that I spent most of the last decade working on the Syria response. So the bulk of my humanitarian career as a practitioner was really in, in and around the Middle East. You describe one of your big kind of emerging trends of modern wars as religious wars in Muslim countries. But as I was reading that, I wanted a bit more granularity because it struck me that a lot of that conflict was actually driven by U.S. wars, 
perpetuated on countries like Afghanistan. And um, and you all can hear from my accent, I'm American. So I can, you go through his country under the bus for inventing the blockade. I can throw my country under the bus for fomenting a lot of the conflict that we see in the Middle East for the last 20 years. You describe it as religious, but I wonder if it might somehow also fit under the category of self-determination, one of your other sort of subcategories of modern warfare. I wonder if Afghans and Iraqis might not describe those conflicts as less starting with ideology, but as a reaction to an invasion. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm sure that's right. I think it's a short part of the book, as I remember. And I note that particular geography that, it, you know, in, in the early part of the 21st century, the first 21 years that I was looking at, most wars have taken place on the territory of Muslim states. In the same way that if you look back at the 20th century, you know, you'd say most war was taking place on, you know, Christian or previously Christian territory in Europe, Western and Eastern Central Europe. So it's a geographical observation, really. And in terms of what you're saying, I would agree in totally. It's, it's the wars that are being fought there are confrontations between extreme religiosity, liberalism, and secularism in, in Arab Baathist ideologies and things like that. So it's a mixture of why and who's fighting. But the, tragically, the people who suffered most in the early 21st century were Muslim populations across parts of Africa and the Middle East. And it's, you know, it was their terrible period in the, in the way that European civilians were the ones who suffered throughout the middle of the 20th century, really. Yeah. So I really just drawing that comparison. Yeah, I really enjoyed that, that that whole section. I know it was very short, but I kept reading it and thinking and kind of turning it around in my head of, of that being a trend and what was actually driving the trend. So I really appreciated that. But if we forward a little bit in the book, you make a statement that the legal definition of war is applied selectively and politically. What did you mean by that? Explain that a bit. Because a lot of people may not have read the book, but that one really resonated with me quite a lot. Well, the legal definition of war sort of requires warring parties. You know, if it's a civil war, an internal armed conflict, it requires, you know, a warring party of a sufficient sort of size, political organization, military force to make it be a war rather than a gang or criminal violence or whatever. So that's the legal threshold for it being a civil war, that there is a sufficiently organized militarily, politically armed group of some kind against a government or more armed groups or armed groups against each other. Now, people are very happy to describe wars in places you were in, you know, in Syria and the Middle East as that sort of thing. But you can cross over to Latin America, possibly Nigeria, parts of Nigeria, parts of Pakistan even, and you can find extremely organized, politically motivated armed groups with some seriously heavy political machinery and lines of command and chains of command. But people choose to talk about that as gangs or narco gangs or criminal gangs because they don't want to talk about a war in their country. And, you know, if you say to the Brazilians they've got that they're a country at war, they'll get terribly upset and object to everything you say about that in the international UN fora, etc. And they're sort of powerful enough to resist those definitions. But in a sense, a lot of the violence we see around the world that kills more people than armed conflict is 
criminal gangs, drug gangs, and in a way they could be recognised as wars very easily because they are all incredibly kitted out with military kit and organised. And, you know, they may have primarily commercial intent to take an area for for their drugs trade, but that has a political intent too. They want to dominate it. They want to have the mayor of that city mm-hmm. in their pocket. They want to, etc. So they have political goals too. So I'm just making the point that we choose which violence we call war. And, and those are political choices usually. Yeah, I, I looked a lot at what you were, you're sort of making the argument that the most powerful countries in the world, Brazil for one, or the United States, where you talk about the, the murder rate in Chicago for a particular period of time in 2021 that far surpassed the death rate of most of the places we're calling active conflict around the world. Yeah. I, that was a really interesting reflection to me that the power holders, and we'll come back to that again towards the end when we talk about localization, the power holders often are spending a lot of time and energy continuously lawyering up and redefining yeah. and further defining the very thing we're here to talk about, which is international humanitarian law. Well, I'm very pleased that, you know, at last Americans are finally prepared to talk about the armed groups in their own society. And I mean, it's come to a head this week when the head of the Oath Keepers is on trial for his and the Oath Keepers' role in, in the January 6th thing. So, you know, it's always been an absurdity to many of us working in this field that, you know, the number of homicide deaths across the states are huge and often much bigger than direct violence in civil wars around the world. And the levels of guns and the level of you know, military machinery in private hands and armed group hands is extraordinary. So I hope we're seeing progress there in America, the US, recognizing its armed groups, its armed violence, and its phenomenal death rates. As an American, I think we're probably a bit far from calling it progress, but maybe the progress is so slow that it'll take another five years for us to be able to look back and see how things evolved over time. So shifting gears again, so I'm kind of working my way through the book. You make this really interesting reflection in chapter three, and you're talking about the gender dynamic and how we've sort of from Dunant's time where he was looking only at white male soldiers. And now we've come into modern humanitarianism where everything is viewed through a gender lens. And it almost seemed that you were making an argument that the gender pendulum has swung so far to the detriment, and this is, I know, not politically correct, but potentially to the detriment of men who are also suffering in conflict. Can you talk a little bit about that for those that might not have read that far yet? Yes, I was making that point. I do think the pendulum swung too far. And I talk about men being the invisible civilians in many wars today. So the change there is, you know, as as you said, you know, if you go back to Dunant's time at the end of the 19th century, if you go back to World War I, even end of World War II sometimes, the iconic victim of war was still the wounded male body, the chap on crutches, the man bleeding, whatever. These were the, this was the victim of war. Now we've quite rightly changed that very, very significantly in the second half of the 20th century and the early 21st century. And we have made the female civilian the ultimate icon of the suffering of war. And, you know, that's true, as we know, in so many ways, both women and and girls can suffer to an extraordinary degree in war. 
But male suffering is also real, and the male civilian is also real, and male civilians suffer in, in different ways. I have a section which looks at different kinds of female and male suffering. So men will tend to be summarily executed very quickly. So they will be the ones that are lined up against walls and shot dead, you know, to, to eradicate potential mm. enemy forces. They will more likely to be ones that are arrested and detained for years and tortured, you know, in large numbers, as in Syria, as you know so well. So there are distinct, you know, atrocities against male bodies, male experience. Men are also more likely to try and go and be migrants and find work overseas, and that brings suffering of its own. And then, of course, there are distinct female forms of suffering, too, notably sexual violence, the crimes and atrocities against female bodies and both women and girls. And there are also those extra burdens that women will carry if they're leading a single-headed family. And, and of course, there's the tragedy, you know, I quoted some figures on this in the book, of maternal mortality. So, you know, women are so much more likely to die in childbirth if they're in or near a war where medical services have just been degraded to such a degree. So both male and female have ways of suffering. And I just feel that there's become a almost fundamentalist humanitarian policy across donor financing, NGO stuff about women and girls, women and girls, so that we're losing sight of male suffering. So that's really what I'm saying. So I'm, the other thing that's bad about that for feminism is that inevitably that focus on female suffering actually victimizes women and in a sense takes away their agency because most of these women are and young girls are doing phenomenal things to survive in war. Every day getting up and doing different things to survive, extraordinary female agency. But inevitably, in that narrative, they're presented primarily as victims of war. And so, in fact, ironically, trying to centre women often actually centres them in a disempowered way. Invisible men and pitiful women is the phrase I use in the book. And that's, we need a, a correction that's more balanced about male suffering and more truthful about women's powerful role in surviving war. As you are quite well known for doing in the last five years or so, I think you have this humanitarian street cred or gravitas to be able to talk about things that are quite taboo. A lot of your work talking about the humanitarian principles and calling into question, particularly neutrality and the value of neutrality as sort of the defining characteristic of what is humanitarian. And I know that you have just recently released another article on that topic specifically. Do you want to talk a little bit about this idea? Yeah, I think, I think the point you make about by stage of life, you know, I think it's a funny thing when you have grey and silverish hair, as, as you know, I now do, it, it, you know, people are prepared to listen to you in a slightly different way. And even the most notoriously rude group of people in the world, which is the Oxford College Porters, they have finally started calling me sir after decades and decades. So they're, they're, I think people do sort of see you differently when you've got grey hair and then they kind of are to sort of listen in a slightly different way. So what I'm doing, I, I mean, I love neutrality. I loved being neutral at the ICRC. I think neutrality has a really important place in humanitarian action. And it's actually a surprisingly liberating vision of the world when you commit to being neutral as I did for five years. And you really make no judgment of the people around you and you talk only to them about human life, aid, etc. It's extraordinary. But it's not the only way to be humanitarian. And very often it's not the best way 
to be humanitarian because you can't reach everyone because people will still refuse you. Governments will still obstruct you. They won't care about your neutrality. And also, it's not the most ethical way to be humanitarian for people who are being attacked, suffering, to pretend they're neutral is a moral and political absurdity. So if you're in Myanmar or Ukraine today, or if Australia was invaded by a very big power, you would want to help a lot of people around you, but you wouldn't want to say I'm neutral and I'm not going to make any judgments about the invader and I don't care who wins this war. You know, you just wouldn't do that. So it's immoral for you in a certain situation to be neutral. So you would be a non-neutral humanitarian. And I'm just interested by that because there was a lot more of that around when I was growing up as a humanitarian in the 70s and 80s. People were in solidarity with people in Central America. They were helping them with aid and they were hoping they would win. You know, it was much more of that liberation theology kind of commitment, the same with the anti-apartheid movement and the Palestinian movement. People took sides and were humanitarian. And they're not morally exclusive positions at all. They work well together. And they're what you and I would do if we were invaded. So I'm just trying to say at the moment, again, it's about the pendulum. I think it's swung too far to the Red Cross model. And I don't think everyone should be the Red Cross. I don't think that model is right for everyone. And so I'm just arguing a new term, humanitarian resistance or resistance humanitarianism. Those resistance groups across Ukraine, across Myanmar at the moment, who are saying we're boycotting the government. This dictatorship is terrible. We object to it. We are politically opposed to it. We're prepared to die in the streets against it. And we're going to form our own medical teams, our own schools for children. We're going to boycott that dictatorship. Now, that to me is humanitarian resistance. They are saying, we are going to resist this and save human lives at the same time. So I've just written a piece which tries to explain that because I started using the term quite a lot last year about Myanmar and Ukraine. I actually probably got the term from reading a book about the Armenian genocide under Ottoman rule, which talks about the humanitarian resistance groups there who were trying secretly and covertly to reach Armenians, feed them, save their lives, and were often killed for doing so by, by the Ottomans. So that sort of humanitarian resistance is really important, and it needs to be recognized, in my view, and people need to realize that you can still commit to humanity and impartiality without being neutral. And therefore, and I've been talking to the donor group in Myanmar this morning, actually, saying you should be ready to finance these groups directly. You should not be hung up by neutrality. So that's what I'm banging on about. I just think it's a term that's worth flying at the moment. And there's going to be more and more resistance mm. movements of different kinds in the, in the world to come around climate, around authoritarianism. We need to find a way to support them. Yeah, I think I think my first encounter with some of your writing a few years back felt like you gave me as a professional humanitarian permission to talk about that very thing. What I had witnessed in and around Syria and the Middle East, how many bombs would your government have to drop on your house before you had to choose a side? Uh, because it is existential if you're the one that is the victim of authoritarianism or of violence. 
Um, and I think that's a really important conversation for us to be having. When, when and where is it important to maintain neutrality? As you said, you were totally committed to neutrality for five years. There is a time and a place and a very, very, very important role for neutrality. We also have to have space for those other conversations that have been, at least for my entire humanitarian career, I came up through the MSF movement um, and the indoctrination about the importance of neutrality and independence. You would be a heretic to speak otherwise. And I think it's good for us to live a bit in that gray and talk about the different the different manifestations of humanitarian action. Yeah, well, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I, I presume I am a heretic in some parts now, but you know. I'm going to skip forward a bit to chapter five, where you talk in great detail about the humanitarian elaborations. And again, you're making this argument, and maybe that's the theme of the book, is how the pendulum continues to swing. And you're talking about sort of all the different things that we as humanitarians continue to try to do. And I would bet that most people on this call have not gotten all the way to chapter five. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that phenomenon that you've noted. You refer to it as the intersectionality and identity of human being and how we've conceptualized all the different things we need to fulfill and how we define humanitarian need. Yeah, I can try. So my, my basic argument there is that humanitarian aid is becoming incredibly complicated possibly too complicated for the scale of the climate crisis we, we have ahead of us. And we will not be able to run such arcane, complicated, socially nuanced programs in the midst of a massive global universal emergency. But if I can explain, so I think, as I remember, that the chapter is really about the humanitarian system and how it has changed. And, you know, I start by celebrating the extraordinary achievement of the humanitarian system. I talk about humanitarian progress. And I compare Syria in, in 1916 and Syria in 2016, 100 years apart, and go back to those Armenians and to Aleppo, where Aleppo was a transit camp in the deportation process of Armenians out into the deserts to, to die. And there was no system to help those people. There was no international humanitarian, you know, international law, human rights law. There was no huge organizations of the UN and others and NGOs to support those people and meet them as they were displaced. And that's dramatically different in 2016, where again, people walked out of Aleppo and could have just walked and died and gone on to their death, but actually they were met by a huge international system. So there's an extraordinary achievement in collective action by your agencies, the Red Cross, the UN, all the NGOs, the government, the largely Western governments that pay for it. They have produced this extraordinary system. But what is happening now, as I, as I noted, and it's always happening, and that's what happens in human life and human organization, is it is becoming more and more elaborate. And bureaucracies, as you know, solve problems by recruiting new teams to solve that problem, which discovers another problem, which then starts a new team to solve that problem. You know, we call it Parkinson's law here in the, in the UK. Constant expansion and elaboration of bureaucracies. And I look at sort of five ways of how that's happening. But the first one you mentioned is, in fact, the elaboration of the principle of humanity itself. You know, the commitment to protect, respect human life and human beings 
is a fairly general universal commitment. But in modern Western liberal humanitarianism, it's being infused with all our new liberal ideas of identity and gender and race and intersectionality and um, sexuality. So no longer can a Western humanitarian simply look at a person and say, that's a human being, they need food, shelter, whatever. They have to do a detailed social deconstruction of that person to find out exactly what their needs are as a straight African woman farmer displaced into an urban setting or something like that, as opposed to, you know, a gay male migrant in transit or something. So there's a huge effort to try and nuance aid right down to this very tailored, these micro identities. And that makes aid very complicated. You know, it's not the sort of thing you can do off the back of a truck. It's not the sort of thing you can say, right, this, this is good for everybody. So that's one area of elaboration. The fact that we've now not just got the principle of humanity, but if you like the principle of diverse humanity, that makes aid pretty complicated. I think that's the point I was making in that section. Yeah, that's that's exactly the section that I was looking at and sort of marveling because you actually give several different categories of how we've made it more complicated. And I have to say that I hadn't ever stopped to reflect on that tension because as you said, here at the Center for Humanitarian Leadership, our entire aim is to really agitate in the space of localization and the power dynamics in the humanitarian system, because looking ahead at a global climate crisis, which will most certainly exacerbate conflict and make the importance of IHL and human rights law profound, I had never reflected on the standards we have set for ourselves as humanitarians and Perhaps, as you suggest in the book, simplification might be something that we need to think about, theme of the pendulum, and how we can think forward about potentially one additional way that we can meet human need is by being a bit more simplified rather than specialized. I do see a question here from Carrie McDougall. She says, the book presents some radical ideas for reform of the delivery of humanitarian assistance. To what extent do you think the humanitarian system is amenable to reform, given the proliferation of humanitarian organizations in the field in modern conflicts? It's a great question. And, and I think, you know, if you had if you looked at the track record of humanitarian reform, you'd say it's not amenable to reform very much at all. And you know, the whole grand bargain process, the whole UN reform process before that, it's still actually operating with the interests of the big agencies at heart, and they're still in charge of where the money is, and so are the Western donors. So I'm not sure it will be reformed structurally in some way. I don't think it will reform itself particularly. And I think the fact that nobody's really copying Australian Red Cross's efforts to become a supporter of localization signals that. So I think it'll probably be changed by the emergence of other humanitarian movements. And they well, they may well be those resistance movements in Myanmar and Ukraine now, which will just suddenly transform the system, challenge it, push some of the big aid agencies aside and deal directly with donors and things. So I think, I think your question is well made. And you know, that's why I think I don't spend a lot of time engaging with the grand bargain or 
that sort of thing because I think that's very incremental, very slow, still built around big agency self-interest. One of my favorite topics is the incentives and self-interest within the system. Again, a whole additional book that you could probably write about that. Um, and I know you know that, so someone has sent me a question by email. My colleague, Melanie Book, who has co-written a couple of articles with you. She unfortunately was sick at the last minute and couldn't join us, but she said, you've called for a more nationalized system of aid and noted that it would be a mistake only to invest in making large national replicas of big aid. However, that investment will likely largely come from the large institutional donors that currently fund INGOs, many of which have inflexible policies relating to program requirements and risk management. I'll skip a little bit here. The question is, if the source of the investment and the expectation of donors remains the same, can we really expect any significant change, even if the funding is more directly given to national actors? What role have existing donors played in the creation of the current system? And what should they do to facilitate change? And what do you think the donor landscape could look like in the coming 10 years as a result? Yeah, thanks, Melanie. Good question. And so I think the climate crisis will change all this. And I think it's changing it already. So the climate crisis will see the world in universal emergency. So, you know, the, the, the stereotypical narrative of aid of the, you know, my lifetime, the last sort of you know, post-war years has been countries in the West, Europe, North America, Australia, we're all right. We need to help the other countries. And I think that's going to change because, in fact, we're all going to be facing emergencies. Australia's got massive droughts and heat waves. You've got real crisis on your doorstep. So, in fact, it's not going to be about a sort of us and them aid delivery system. It's going to be how can we all look after our own massive climate crisis in our own country and maybe contribute internationally with collective action to support others. So I have a feeling, you know, China is going to be focused on its climate emergencies, its droughts, its water shortages, its problem. America will be the same. It's got a huge hurricane going to hit Tampa tomorrow, which may, you know, destroy it in a way that it hasn't been destroyed before. All these things are going to mean in fact, that we're going to see reductions in international aid as we understand it. I think the Germans, who were going to be the big hope to replace British aid, have just cut their budget by 25%. So they're no longer the great hope of plugging that humanitarian funding gap. And I think we're going to need some sort of COP process for international humanitarian aid, climate aid. We're going to have to get all states together saying, right, this is what we're doing in our countries. Now, what else have we got spare? to help poorer countries. And, and I think we're gonna to have to have systems of systems. So China's gonna to have to do its area and its area of influence, same with the US, Europe, India, etc. That's what I talk about in the book. And there's no way, you know, unless suddenly China and Russia disappear as major powers in the next 10 years, which some people think they will, there's no way if they don't that just growing the Western system is going to, you know, make it the universal system. I just don't think it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. It hasn't got enough power, hasn't got enough money. It's going to have massive emergencies of its own, and it won't have the political reach because China won't let it operate in its backyard, nor will Russia, nor will India. So, in fact, the Western system will never be the global system. It's going to have to just focus on its own patch and then 
try and contribute into a cop-like process. I think. Anyway, I'm not a great systems thinker, but that's what I'm thinking. Regarding localization, has COVID given an opportunity to the humanitarian system to shift that Western-centered power and mentality and to focus on localization and powering local capacity? And what are the best ways for international INGOs to support local humanitarian actors? You talk about this toward the end of your book. Yeah, so I think COVID was a great moment of opportunity for locally led aid. International agencies seem to have rolled it up a bit afterwards again. I mean, I think it was quite helpful when everyone was stuck behind their Zooms and couldn't get security and safety clearance to go operational. So, of course, local actors had to step up and step in. And I think that should have been a tipping point moment for localization, but it hasn't been really because we've had the same old system of big agencies appealing for millions and billions because of COVID, you know. So we still haven't broken the donor addiction to the international middleman. We haven't got that direct funding yet going, and that's a shame because that could have happened. So that's what has to happen. So in terms of the second part of the question, we have to, you know, big agencies have to be brave. I think the little ones are at the moment. I was talking to HelpAge International in Bangkok the other day, and they are trying to, you know, nationalise, do locally-led stuff. I think it will come from there. It's not going to come from the big UN agencies particularly, I don't think, and the donors. But I'm not a great expert. I'm, I'm not very good on facts, unfortunately. I'm not very good on data and all these things. I, I'm quite happy with ideas. And, of course, that's very dangerous. Somebody who only has ideas and no evidence. <laughs> Well, I have, there's a question that came up in the chat and I'll just summarize very quickly. This tension between sort of data fog and humanitarian hype. And this is coming from a comms professional saying, you know, we've got this tension between we need to raise money. There's a lot of competition, but we don't want to emphasize myths and inaccuracies. What would you advise to comms people to navigate that? Yeah, so this is a point in the book where I do, I do criticize the humanitarian world for creating sort of myths and magic numbers and I am using the data of other people for that actually so I think it's too easy for us to fall into lazy slogans like 80% of displaced people are women and girls which is true in some areas but by no means in all areas and for loads of areas we don't even have data so it's a bizarre claim but it suits everyone saying we're working with women and girls give us the women and girls budget you know We have to stop that and be much more nuanced. And I think the other thing is to be careful with data and interpret it properly before you use it. Don't just use the bits that serve your purpose. And the other thing that everyone's trying to do at the moment, of course, is ethical storytelling. As I think it's Jess has asked this question and and she'll know this well. So trying to think hard about how you as the comms person and the agency don't tell the story. You enable people experiencing what you're talking about to tell the story. Initial research shows that actually you get more money when they do that because people are a bit wise to your glossy mags that, you know, we are the answer to all the problems. They get more resonance with people who are telling their own story. And it's probably, you know, a story that combines suffering with agency in some way. So I think that's the only advice I would have to comms people in a way. But be really wary of jumping on these bandwagon magic numbers and slogans. Great. Um, But I'll pass back to Marie to close us out from another amazing book club. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hugo, for being with us tonight. Thank you, Mariana, for asking all these questions. And thank you, everyone else, for coming along. I think it was a really wonderful 
Club. If you are in Melbourne and you are one copy short of Hugo's book, you can get that at Readings Carlton or you can get it online. Grab a copy if you haven't had a chance to read it, though I know a lot of you have. And thank you all. Thank you on behalf of Readings and thank you Australian Red Cross and thank you to you, Hugo. I hope you have a lovely day. I hope the rest of us who are in the evening have a lovely evening. On that note, uh, I'll wrap it up and let everyone get on with their evening. Thank you. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast at our website. We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for listening.